Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the final podcast in a special series celebrating the first National Pathology Week held by the Royal College of Pathologists. I'm Ben Valsler from thenakedscientists.com and in these podcasts I'll bring you some of the highlights of Pathology Week events. In the previous three podcasts we've celebrated the success in treating MS of a drug developed by pathologists in Cambridge... We've discovered how to contain an outbreak of plague in London, and we've debated the merits and the risks of medical self-testing. In this podcast, we'll discover the process of the post-mortem, often incorrectly assumed to be the main thing that pathologists do. Death is, of course, a delicate subject, and many people shy away from discussing it. But the post-mortem is a vital opportunity to discover how a person died, and learn more about the disease. Autopsies allow us to understand better how a disease will present itself prior to death, and we can use this knowledge to better manage illness and help to treat the living. To help people better understand what happens in an autopsy, why one may be required and what we can learn, the Royal College of Pathologists held an event called Autopsy, the Ultimate Surgical Operation. In this free but hugely oversubscribed event, people were given the opportunity to go through the process of a simulated autopsy and ask questions of the pathologists for whom this is day-to-day work. It was also a chance to see and handle the equipment used in a post-mortem and take part in a competition to see if you could guess what each tool was used for. For many people, our only experience of an autopsy will be one that we've seen on television, often in a crime drama such as Silent Witness or CSI. Although television can be very glamorous, post-mortems are usually shown as part of a grisly murder investigation, and judging by the opinions of people at the start of this event, it seems that some of that negative image stays with us. It kind of felt like blood and death and horrible things. Mainly from watching stuff like a Silent Witness, it just seems like it's useful, but often I think it can be a bit of an intrusion in people's privacy and stuff. I met up with Dr Susie Lishman, who was running the event. As a consultant histopathologist, she often performs post-mortems and understands the impact that they can have on grieving relatives. I wanted to find out if the depictions on television really were influencing people's opinions of autopsy. I think it is. I think people learn a lot about pathology from the television. We learn a lot about everything from the television. Pathologists on there are portrayed as like the people you see in Silent Witness or on CSI. They're doing forensic autopsies, looking into crimes and murders and things like that. So that's very much the impression that the public have um, about what pathology is about. But in fact... That's not really very realistic. Less than 1% of pathologists in the country are forensic pathologists, the ones who look into crimes and murders. So there are less than 50 forensic pathologists in the country and about four or 5,000 pathologists who do other things. 
So this event, being all about the autopsy, has given people an opportunity to think a bit more about it and find out a bit more about the processes. What do you think people will take away from it? I think, well, I hope that they'll realise that the autopsy is a respectful and dignified process, that it's really part of somebody's medical care. It's the last thing that we can do for somebody, is to find out how they died and what disease they had. It's almost like the final surgical procedure, like having an operation. It's not gory or distasteful or disgusting in any way. It's like an operation that has a look at all the organs in the body to find out why somebody died. And as well as providing interesting information for the doctors who looked after the patient and perhaps they can learn about how to treat patients with that disease in future. Feedback from relatives has told us that they found it very useful for coming to terms with the person's death. They learned, for example, that they would have died quickly, with not in pain, and that, quite importantly, there's nothing that they could have done to have made a difference, and that's something that people often like to know. It's also useful for people to know that it's not a disease that may run in the family, or if it is, they can then go and get medical help and perhaps have screening and treatment to make sure that it doesn't affect another family member. At one point uh, this afternoon, you commented that everybody in that room now knows an awful lot more about the autopsy procedure than everyone else. Do you think this should be something that people should know a bit more about? Should this perhaps be taught in schools? Well, I'm all for teaching more about science and medicine and certainly pathology in schools, and that's part of the point of National Pathology Week, which is to raise awareness of what pathologists do. An autopsy, obviously, is just one very small part of the wide range of things that pathologists do in their day-to-day jobs. Yes, I suppose it would be nice if people understood more about the autopsy, but as I said, there's such a wide range of things that we can inform people about, and the autopsy is really just one of them. And also, this was one of the most oversubscribed events of National Pathology Week. If you bring Pathology Week back next year, do you think we'll do more of this sort of thing? I think we will certainly build on the event that we've held here today. It was the first time. We've already got some ideas of how we might do it slightly differently next time. We can then tell other pathologists around the country about what we've done and how we did it, perhaps provide some simple resources for them, and then they can repeat it around the country, which gives more people an opportunity to come along rather than this one-off event which we've put on today. The event was a great success and very good fun despite the morbid subject matter. Shortly, Chris Smith from thenakedscientist.com will take you through a real autopsy with the help of consultant pathologist Alison Cluro. But now, imagine a table laid out with gleaming surgical tools, some of which look entirely alien, while others you recognise from your kitchen or garden shed. These are the tools required for an autopsy, with one exception. There's a red herring on the table, which really does belong in somebody's kitchen. Could you guess what each tool is for? Well, it looks like a very long-handed pair of scissors with a rather nasty sharp end on it, and I think it's probably used for cutting ligaments or tendons. Okay, this is some kind of T-shaped metal creation, and it has one slightly sharper edge, so I'm guessing it's used for splitting something. It looks like some sort of hammer or um, device to knock through a body part or something. So you think it's for bashing through bones? (laughs) Yes, maybe, I'm not sure. But some of them are like household objects that you would just find in your house, like the tweezers and the glue and the sponges, just like what are they going to be used for? And you know that one of them is actually a red herring, one of them wouldn't get used in an autopsy. Do you want to hazard a guess at which one that is? I think it's probably the glue, because you're taking people apart not sticking them together. And were they right? Susie Lishman explains what the tools are really for. These two, as you hear, go together. This is a T-shaped chisel. 
used for opening the skull. And this is a mallet, and it's just like the sort of mallet you might use for DIY that comes from a hardware store. It's not any particular special type, and that's just used to give that tap. And then you saw these barrel scissors. This is probably the most unusual and unique of the instruments we've used. Most of the others, you can imagine where you might use them at home or for some other purpose. But for this one, I'm not quite sure what else you'd use that for. So these special barrel scissors for opening up the barrel. Sponges used for lots of things. If you said anything like mopping up body fluids, cleaning the body afterwards, that's what a sponge is used for. The super glue, either for reconstruction or for gluing perhaps the skull bones back together. Very good stuff. And the red herring, this is my fish slice, which I brought along for my kitchen. But I thought it looks like it ought to be an instrument. It's sort of made from one piece of metal. Looks quite clinical, doesn't it? So that was the red herring. That came from my kitchen, and we'll be going back there. So appropriately, the red herring was in fact the fish slice. I hope she gives it a thorough wash before she uses it again. Pathology fact. Over 70% of all diagnoses made in the NHS involve pathology. As part of the Naked Scientists radio show during Pathology Week, Dr Chris Smith attended a genuine autopsy being conducted by consultant pathologist Alison Cluro. The descriptions in this piece are really quite graphic, so if you feel you may be at all distressed by this, or if you're feeling queasy, I recommend you skip onwards about 10 minutes. If not, I hope that this can give you a real insight into how the post-mortem is a fascinating and very respectful process. Here's Alison Cluro. This morning I'm going to take you through a post-mortem examination on a 72-year-old lady who died at home. She had a history of high blood pressure, gout and indigestion and of late had complained of um, abdominal distension. Uh, she had been to see her GP but uh, was very reluctant to go to hospital. Uh, the GP had arranged for her to undergo some tests and those were uh, going to happen over the course of the next few days when unfortunately she died unexpectedly and suddenly at home. And presumably because we don't know why she died, the GP couldn't say Therefore, it comes to you to try and work out what was going on with this lady and why she's unfortunately died. Yes, because the GP cannot issue a death certificate, the case becomes a coronial case. It's referred to the coroner, and uh, he then looks at all the information and makes a decision as to whether we proceed to a post-mortem examination to establish if this is, in fact, a natural death. And looking at this lady, what jumps out at you in your external examination? What do you think is going on here? In essence, she has a massively distended abdomen, which uh, does raise questions that some intra-abdominal catastrophe has taken place. Now, looking at that distended abdomen, I would be wondering, has she got an intestinal obstruction? She certainly has evidence that she has been vomiting, and that is clear from looking at the body. And one would have to conclude the likelihood is that this is an obstruction. Whether it's an obstruction from something like an internal hernia or twisted bowel or tumour, we will have to wait until we do the internal examination. And the fact that she had a history of high blood pressure, could that be, say, an aneurysm? Yes, she does have a history of hypertension, and one of the pathologies that goes hand-in-hand hand with that is an aneurysm of the abdominal aorta. The aorta is a large artery running through uh, the abdomen, and uh, 
on occasion in people with hypertension, it can balloon out so the wall becomes paper thin. Uh, it's carrying a large amount of blood under pressure, so there is a possibility that this balloon can burst with massive intra-abdominal hemorrhage. So that would be another possible in the differential diagnosis. The next step, presumably, is to open the body up and have a look what's going on inside. Indeed. At that point, we undertake an evisceration, which is done in combination with a mortuary technician. So now we're opening the chest and abdomen, and uh, we can see this distended abdomen very tight. As the abdomen is opened, there's a large amount of blood-stained fluid uh, pouring from the opening and large loops of uh, uh, distended bowel packing the abdominal cavity. There's a small hernia uh, next to the um, umbilicus, the, the belly button, where a small piece of bowel has pushed through the abdominal wall. It's a possibility at this moment that that hernia has caused an obstruction to the bowel and is responsible for uh, a lot of the pathology that we're uh, uh, seeing here. How, how would that happen if that were the case? The small piece of bowel uh, gets uh, trapped within the hernial sac and, uh, and obstructed, so no fluid, no food, nothing can pass further along the bowel. So as more fluid is drunk and more food is eaten, the bowel distends and distends and distends, and this causes the abdominal distension that we see. Actually, as I'm watching this happening and I see the technician is starting to dissect a little bit further, there appears to be some sort of tumour in here. So I'm beginning to change my thought processes as we go along here. There's some little um, patches of it on the, on the wall of the abdomen that we can yes, see. Yes, we can see here on the, the shiny peritoneal surface, the lining of the abdomen, there are several nodules of white tumour that are now apparent as we've folded back the abdominal wall. It's also apparent that we've got large masses of tumour uh, gluing the, the loops of small bowel and large bowel in the back of the stomach. So it looks to me, in fact, that, as if this lady has got a, a massive intra-abdominal tumour that's probably arising from one of the intra-abdominal organs. So what, maybe bowel or maybe Maybe bowel, uh, although with that pattern of spread, I would be wondering about ovary because commonly bowel likes to go to the liver, whereas uh, ovary likes to go around the abdominal cavity. So the pattern I'm seeing at the moment would make me think it might be going to be an ovarian tumour. So I suppose if we now look through the organs that have been removed, we, we might get some clues. Yes, I think so. I think we should move on and have a look at the organs now. So uh, what I'm going to do is... Uh, cut through each of the organs individually and we're starting with the spleen a slightly softened spleen which suggests some underlying infection not surprisingly with the uh, uh, degree of disease going on within the abdomen here and intestinal obstruction but it doesn't appear to have any tumour in it Moving on to have a look at the kidneys, I can see no evidence of tumour. There is, however, evidence of surface scarring in this kidney. Yes, it's not smooth, is it? There are some little sort of pock marks on the surface. That's, what are they? That's right. The pockmarked areas would suggest previous episodes of kidney infection, pyelonephritis. These leave quite coarse scars on the surface. In addition, there's a very fine granular scarring over the whole surface of the kidney, which is something you see in people who have a history of hypertension, high blood pressure. But that wouldn't have caused the, the present problem. No, no, those are incidental findings. If we move on to have a look at the liver, as I slice through the liver, uh, we can see two tiny tumour deposits, which are the white, soft, fleshy tumours, exactly the same as we're seeing within the abdomen. Yes, they stand out really prominently, don't they, because the liver's a nice, brown, very homogeneous, regular colour and appearance, and there are these white blobs 
standing there as though someone's actually pressed them on. That's right. Very clear, well-defined white nodules which are metastatic deposits of tumour. So this tumour has spread to the lady's liver. And and would it get there through the blood supply then? Likely to have spread by bloodstream. Tumours spread by three methods, direct spread, through the bloodstream and through the lymphatic channels and the lymph nodes. In this case, this would be bloodborne spread, yes. If we uh, move on now to have a look at the... uh, thoracic organs, the organs within the chest. We'll start by having a look at this lady's heart because we know that she has a history of high blood pressure. That tends to make the heart enlarge. And as we're examining it here, I think you can see that she does, in fact, have a big heart, a very meaty-looking left ventricle of the heart. This is the one that pumps the blood around the body. It's quite evident that there is a thickening of the wall, which would be compatible with the history, as we know, of high blood pressure. Looking at her coronary arteries, these are the blood vessels supply the heart, and often these become hardened with fatty deposits of atheroma, but in this case, in fact, her coronary arteries are in very good condition. She has hardly any atheroma. Yes, I wish my heart was that good. I suspect it's not, but this looks less normal, though, here. What's this? Yes, as we're moving on now, I'm uh, actually uh, looking at this lady's trachea, her main airway from the back of her throat, and that airway is packed with vomit, so she has aspirated vomit, and if we now actually move on to look at the lungs, you will see that all the tiny air extending all the way out to the periphery of the lung are packed with this vomit. So unfortunately, the the actual final cause of death in this lady is her massive aspiration of gastric contents. And that would have caused asphyxia, presumably? Yes, yes. Essentially, she would have asphyxiated and been unable to breathe uh, as a consequence of that. But we need to actually now go to the main source of the problem, which will explain why she has had such a massive aspiration of vomit. We have here the uh, gastrointestinal system, and we can see that the small bowel uh, is massively dilated, and as we move down at length, there's a huge, huge lump of tumour that completely encircles and encases the bowel and has essentially obstructed the bowel. Does this give you any clues as to what sort of tumour this is yet, though? Well, I think I'm still of the opinion that I would favour this being an ovarian primary tumour. So we've opened the bowel, we're looking at the bowel from the inside. I can't see any tumour arising from within the lining of the bowel, which is where you would expect a primary bowel cancer to come from. So I guess the answer is to actually take a look at the ovaries and see if if there are signs of cancer there. Yes, and I have here in front of me the pelvic organs, uh, which includes both the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, and the uterus or womb. And I think you can probably see that there are these sort of craggy, white, nodular deposits all over the surface of the uterus and also over both the left and right ovaries. Uh, Quite hard to make out where the fallopian tubes are because they're completely encased and embedded in these two tumour masses surrounding the ovaries and I am certain that what we're dealing with here is a primary ovarian tumour with metastasis within and throughout the abdominal cavity and ultimately spread to the liver as well. So we started today with someone who was found collapsed at home, they died suddenly, that's all we knew. So if, if you could put it all together for us and tell us how you've actually reached the conclusion you have as to what happened to this lady. Yes. Well, in summary, this lady has essentially had a large tumour, I would think, growing for some time in her abdominal cavity, causing abdominal distension. We have massive tumour deposits in her abdomen. These have ultimately ended up compressing and obstructing her bowel. So she's developed a bowel obstruction where the contents of the bowel can no longer pass normally through, which has caused her to begin to vomit. Uh, And this vomiting has ultimately been so much that she has actually 
been unable to breathe and vomit at the same time. So she's ended up breathing in a large amount of the gastrointestinal content into her lungs and that has caused her acute and sudden death. That was Alison Cluro giving us a unique insight into the process of a post-mortem. Many thanks are due to Alison, but also due to Her Majesty's Coroner, who kindly gave us permission to take part in that post-mortem. That's all for this, the final Pathology Week podcast. Please check out the rest of the series, if you haven't already, in which we highlight key events throughout the week. We find out the story behind Pathology Week itself, we get involved in an outbreak of plague, and we debate the merits of home medical testing. Please also keep an eye out for future Pathology Week events, which will offer a rare window into the fascinating world of pathology. You can find out more about National Pathology Week online at nationalpathologyweek.org, and you can also visit the website of the Royal College of Pathologists at rcpath.org. I'm Ben Valsler from thenakedscientist.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.